Welcome to Barn Blog, where our aim is to give you the best in analysis and philosophy, political economy, history, art, culture, and geopolitics from a left-wing and socialist-friendly perspective. We aim to bring you different perspectives from different walks of life and to have you educate yourself what to do with what you learn here. We do not aim to give you prefabricated and easy answers. Abandon all hope, ye who subscribe here, for you will learn, and it will be your responsibility what you do. And with that, let's begin today's episode. Hello, and welcome to Varm Blog. And today we're here with Forrest Miller, one of the many hosts of <laughs> Movie Night Extravaganza. Um, and, and movie host of This Is Revolution right yeah, now. And, and uh, <laughs> I, I got ready to put the hat down because I thought that's what you're going to say. That's right. right. <laughs> and movie host of This Is Revolution on the Wednesday series, um, where we both are uh, regulars on. Uh, on I think the third Wednesday of the month, um, it's my it's my gaming show with Gene Bajalon. You guys are first Wednesday, right? Yeah, first Wednesday of the month, and uh, which sometimes I think means like you know the fifth or the sixth, and sometimes means the first, depending on the <laughs> month. <laughs> right. Um, so, uh, Forrest, um, you've been doing a movie podcast for the last. I don't know, a few months. You've done a ton of movies in not a lot of time. Yeah, um, I think we're hitting episode 25 tomorrow in, um, I want to say, four months, but it might be three months. Right. Um, y- you, like me, overproduce. I, I hit, in five months, I've hit episode 40 of my podcast and, like, 50-something of the stream. Um, <laughs> so I feel you. Uh, so, what what makes Movie Night Extravaganza interesting? It to me is that usually, but not always, um, it's not a political show. But because of your prior producing experience and because of your own interest, almost all your guests come out of the realm of political commentary, or at least are adjacent to it. Yeah, um, I mean, I would I would call it a leftist movie podcast because you know it always kind of involves elements of um i mean i'm not going to say like you know it's a marxist movie podcast because you know a lot of our guests probably aren't but you know like at, at least left adjacent um yeah you know movie podcast so uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it could not be like i don't think that <laughs> right if i wanted it to be <laughs> and it's often a very freeform movie podcast you you I've, you've tightened up the format in the last few months although i remember my first couple of visits on the show as one of your panelists, um, we were longer than the movie <laughs> significantly. Yeah. yeah, that's happened quite a few times. Um, yesterday, we kind of loosened back up because it was uh, we were doing kind of the entire Halloween franchise, whatever everybody wanted to talk about. So it ended up being like three hours, and I was like, no one's going to fucking watch this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, long streams are interesting because they have they tend to have a high engagement rate during their stream, but they also don't get the don't tend to get watched more than a month out. So, but then again, that's yeah. true for all streams. Um, what would you say have you learned from the movies that you've done? You've done a a pretty big mix of of what some people would consider. Not art house, but movie classics mixed in with uh, maybe what people would consider like grind house or B movie um, classics. Yeah, some some of them. I mean, you know, I, I think more. Well, we kind of just go with whatever um, hits our hits our fancy, I guess, for the week. Like, you know, sometimes I've had guests say, "Hey, I want to do this. Um, like, do this movie, and can I come on?" Um, like the last, this is revolution one that I did was with, uh, with Conan Neutron and he's been wanting to do like the player for a really long time. So we ended up doing the player and, uh, which is not a movie that I've seen until, until then, but I was like excited to see it. I mean, cause you know, Robert Altman's a really good director. One of the first like new, new Hollywood, I guess, type directors. And it, you know, that's not exactly a, um, a part of, you know, the part of, I guess, Hollywood history that I've ever really wanted to engage with as much as other parts, like, um, like older noir stuff in college i really got into um like older hollywood stuff i'm kind of fascinated by like the the old studio system i'm fascinated by like the hayes code mm-hmm. so like so that's kind of a focus that i have that, that i don't really get to express very often and i've been happy to on this show and then um and then i think you know newer stuff a lot of times is kind of a must like i mean we did parasite and you were on that stream and we did um i mean we, we've done like uh i mean we did snowpiercer we did uh, sorry to bother you. We did, you know, just a, a whole bunch of leftist, um, newer stuff. So you know, this brings us to uh, radical art and radical content in movies. I have the somewhat unpopular opinion amongst leftists that most leftists are outside of film. And I actually will talk about the, why I think film is the exception. Um, sucks. So, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I, I don't know how else to put it. I don't disagree. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the fact that leftists tend to be didactic in the way that they approach their material. Um, film seems to be the exception, and the exception has to do, I think, kind of with the nature of the medium. It's very, very hard to make a didactic film that isn't even obvious to the people making it, that it's bad. Um, I mean, I think, I think the thing that really gets leftist directors and I'm happy they've kind of moved away from this is like way too much dialogue, way too much like exposition and like really mm -hmm. trying to hammer your point home. And I don't, I think audiences don't respond to that whatsoever. Um, And, and it's interesting. I think liberal filmmakers more than anything have, have really hammered their point home in recent times. And, like the, you know, the fact that audiences are pretty instantly like, whoa, like, I don't want to fucking see this. I want to be entertained. I don't want to have like, you know, I don't want to have your social commentary like preached to me. Like, like movies, like I think movies like, um like even like Get Out, which is obviously a, a liberal movie, but like movies that kind of hide it within either the horror genre or like a fantasy genre, or I, I think go down with audiences a lot better. Um, right. Well, that's true in literature too. I mean, if you look at, where you can get away with political literature that tends to go well, that doesn't seem preachy. It's, it's speculative fiction. Um, it does seem like the last few years have been the years of the preachy liberal movie, um, yeah. or the preaching moderate <laughs> movie. Um, 
My examples of that would be um, Hillbilly Elegy, when Ron Howard decides to make a conservative screed, a conservative screed that I actually think at some level actually portrays like lower middle class white Ohio and upper Appalachian life, life somewhat accurately, um, but has all these weird screedy points in it. And he, you know, gets it, gets awesome actors and makes it the most anodyne, safe, uh, middle of the road movie you can possibly make it and of course everybody hates it um but I, I i'm also I so i made it through the first 50 minutes of um hillbilly elegy and then fell asleep i really like wasn't that entertained by it um i i watched it for uh you know karthik and i were trying to watch everything that was like nominated for an oscar because we did that mm-hmm. um well it ended up being a this is revolution oscar stream but originally we were gonna like write something and it was like i don't know there, we didn't really know like the format for it so i watched a bunch of just like um, whatever was nominated for Oscars, which I never do. I feel like I watch movies that are nominated for the Oscars this year, like a couple years later. Um, <laughs> and I, Hillbilly Elegy, I don't know. I, I have, it was interesting that that movie came out the same year as Nomadland, right? Because I think the the liberal side of that is Nomadland. Like the, oh, we're not going to do anything about it. Amazon funds us. But like, we want to make sure that you know that like, you know, these these people living van life, you know, as Jason calls it, like hashtag van life, like these people living in RVs, like they're human. They might be homeless, mm-hmm. but like they have stories. And Hillbilly Elegy, everyone was kind of a a very one-sided uh, character. And the, the message was purely like, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You know right. what I mean? Like that's that's the only, like, oh, you can get out of this, this mess. Like if you're in Midwestern Ohio still or whatever, like living this way, like it's your fault. You're not working. Yeah, hard. which is... <laughs> An interesting thing about uh, J.D. Vance that people should know, I think I talked about this uh, after I watched that movie. Friend of He's, friend of Kenzo, J.D. Vance. Really? No. He, uh, Kenzo had a, Kenzo had a um, J.D. Vance, uh, his friend does an impression of him, I guess, and makes like, these oh. videos where he pretends to be J.D. Vance. So he interviewed his friend as J.D. Vance like the other day. <laughs> gotcha. So J.D. Vance is uh, was a uh, non-grunt got a non-grunt position in the, in the military when he went in that got him access to an Ohio Senator um, who was also serving. And that's how, that's kind of how he progressed up the academic chain so quickly is he had, is he uh, worked for that Senator. And once you have that, you know how that goes. Um, yeah. I've heard that story from multiple places. It's completely not in the book or the movie. So well, there's other know, there's other things that like the differences between the book and the movie, like him like finding his mother like Odie or whatever, and like you know trying to pay for her to go to rehab, like all these heroic moments don't even happen in the book. Like he's not even trying to make himself into this hero, like even even to the point that like Ron Ho- like Ron Howard was trying to make him into, <laughs> right? Um, and but what's also interesting is Ron Howard also tries to take ninety percent of the political content of that book because most of it is a screed out. Um, and he also takes a lot of the really unflattering stuff about the white working class out. I mean, they're, they're, he, other than the, the drug addict, the drug addled mother, um, you know, I come from a class back I'm like that, actually, that movie should have hit home for me. Um, and it, for 30 seconds then, and then I got mad (laughs) because I was like, it still cleaned it up. Like it still did whatever. Um. I watched all the Oscar movies this year because I was interested in them. I liked one of them, and its its name has already 
Left My Mind, which is about <laughs> the Korean farmers. It's, it's a movie shot. Oh, Minari. Yeah, Minari, I really like yeah. that, too. I really yeah, like that I, movie, too. Um, which I thought was good. Everything else I thought was basically feel-bad liberal agitprop. Yeah, well, I mean, um, which is always what, you know, the Oscars really is. Like, that's why I don't really watch Oscars movies most of the time. I'm like, I could be watching any number of things right now. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting when I compare Oscars movies from the 70s, which have their own problems, but were interesting, versus Oscar movies from the last 10 years. Which Oscar movies from the last 10 years tend to either flatter liberal sensibilities or flatter Hollywood. And this last run was was mostly feel bad movies i think you know i think parasite winning was or a year before was important but i, I also thought we had i thought we had best foreign film parasite what was that all about <laughs> well you know since since like three-fourths of the actors in american movies are british anyway we should probably just drop that the separation category yeah, no, but it should be a separation category. It kind of um, puts Hollywood up on a pedestal, which is what the Oscars kind of do in general, right? Like, you know, as you said, like, it's a lot of movies that flatter Hollywood. Um, like, of course, of course, they're not going to want, like, competition um, to start kicking in. Um. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, the Golden Globes would kind of be competition, except that you can buy awards. So, yeah. <laughs> um, it's... It's interesting though because I think the movie, the cinema territory is in a in a weird way right now, and we all know it from COVID. Nobody's been in films. The thing is, cinema attendance has been declining for ten years. The growth model for cinema since since before I even left the country has been get people in their seats in like China and South Korea and rich parts of India, make movies that are fairly anodyne. I mean, it's it's both why movies are like universally enjoyable, but why the stakes are so huge, why they're mostly Marvel, why they're mostly based on like adolescent tropes and why there's not been a sex scene in a movie for for 10 years. It's because the, the market has to be so broad to recoup yeah. cost. It's, it's interesting when I think that our cultural moment clashes with that, because um. I was thinking a bit recently about um because I was listening to the Alex Cox's a podcast where he mentioned this mm-hmm. the fact that like you know there's a whole thing about uh, Tilda Swinton in Doctor Strange you know obviously being like a white British woman playing a character that was played by like a Tibetan like a, a, a male Tibetan character in the comics right and everyone's like oh why did why did she do that why did she do that and it's because the Chinese uh, the Chinese government like the CCP wouldn't let a Tibetan character because um, you know Marvel takes the script to all these different governments like it's, I'm not just you know, like ragging on China with this, but like, you know, like in order to get the movie accepted in all of these different markets, you have to kind of make concessions, which is something that Marvel is very, and like Disney is very willing to do when it's, you know, things like that. So all of a sudden um, this whole backlash kind of happened against Tilda Swinton and like sitting there, like after the fact being like, Oh, well, why was she cast in that role? And it's like, she's cast in that role because, you know, it, it, you have to have a certain, um, you know, a certain type of, you have to have a certain, I guess, concessions, cultural concessions to each market that you put your film into. Right. And and <laughs> as, I know this is a, a, a I don't mean to sound condescending, but it it is sometimes a shock to people that our our obsessions with people playing their ethnicities um, and all ethnicities being represented is not a concern of foreign moviegoers in the same way. It's just not. Yeah. Um, 
I think about that China funded movie that had Matt Damon in it. It's like, what? <laughs> um, uh, but the other thing about that that's interesting, right? I also thought, like, well, what if they had cast it with an Asian actor and just made him not Tibetan or something? It would have been a Norrlandal stereotype because it was the source materials from the 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, and it's kind of racist. I mean, yeah. the modern Doctor Strange version of that character isn't, but the first three decades are. So it's I find that going back to It's also incredibly it would be incredibly offensive, I think, to replace a Tibetan uh character with like a Chinese act. Like, you know what I mean? Like that's like while 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 what's happening with Tibet and China is happening, like just you know, swapping out a Tibetan character for a Chinese character, I think is far more offensive than just like throwing Tilda Swinton in there. Right. <laughs> well, I mean that I, I remember and this is how old I am, I remember when uh I was in college and Memoirs of a Geisha came out and they're casting um Chinese character Chinese and Taiwanese actors as uh as Japanese, which kind of made all sides of that equation mad, particularly in the context of <laughs> World War II. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, in some ways, yeah, we've gotten better on some of this stuff. In other ways, we we absolutely haven't. But there's, I mean, there's also, you know, like Asian Asians and then Asian Americans and Asian Americans seeing themselves as a group that uh, gets represented a certain way, but then also Asian, you know, governments seeing themselves represented in film a certain way. It gets right. to be incredibly complicated. And well, I don't I think that... Like in a U.S. centric mindset, where you're just sitting in a, in a you know a movie audience, not thinking about like any kind of geopolitical strategy when it comes to making movies, which I should say I'm not dogging on on China or any other you know government because like the U.S. military funds like most movies, including Marvel movies. I was going to say most all Marvel like, movies have U.S. military involvement. Like, yeah. so you're I mean you're trying to if if you're if you're Marvel you're trying to please. A lot of different um, diametrically opposed uh, <laughs> markets, um, right? Within that, um, I mean, no, but so, so, like, I don't think that, but like, you're not thinking about that as just some like random person going to see a Marvel movie. Something that right. you might be uh, assuaged by is like a liberal journalist writing on a, you know, on Facebook or something, being like, "Listen, Tilda Swinton in this movie," and then that's a whole other group of people now that are invested in the movie. Um, you know, well, ticket sales, but not like not literally invested the same way that like the military is, but like ticket sales all of a sudden are um, up in arms because, you know, you know what I mean? Like some people are going to now boycott the movie and like Disney doesn't want anyone boycotting the movie. So it's a funny like the the, the amount of different like groups, I think, that has to be appeased in that equation is, is pretty hilarious. Yeah. Uh, one thing I will I will say the the most recent example of this for me where the politics are just incoherent because Disney can't be. Um, is Black Widow's new movie because we, we're going to set it in like 1995 to 1998 but somehow still have this vague maybe Soviet Union, maybe Cuban communist super soldier program that no one knows how it still exists because the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore even in the context of the movie um, and that's also not brought up like apparently 1992 <laughs> never happened or the soviet union never happened it was just it <laughs> it ends up being a totally incoherent mess where you're like is this a cold war movie it doesn't even make sense for that well maybe um, it's like that one the one japanese guy that at the end of world war ii that like came out of um like a really really dense like woods like 10 years after world war ii ended and was just like assuming that it was still going on 
Yeah. <laughs> That's the Black Widow program in that. And so it doesn't even make sense. Um I find I find it interesting to compare the early Marvel movies, which I think are for mid-brow movies that were mar- even even would say Iron Man, the first one, were marketed to an international audience. Um how different they are than the current ones, partly because like they still were commenting on specific American politics. Go back and watch Iron Man One, and there's there's stuff about like the Bush era anti-terrorist programs and stuff in it. It's really anodyne, but it's in there. Yeah. Um, well, and it's also kind of inescapable within that story. I think at that time, you know what I mean? Like in 2008, I think it's inescapable to like comment on that uh, instead of like you know, I mean, we're kind of in a really fucking weird point in like the the war on terror. Um, mm-hmm. at, you know, at this point, you can kind of gloss over all of that and just be like, listen, military, uh, you know, military contractors, it's fine. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> Obama had them like we had Trump, we have Biden. Like, listen, it's, you know, right. <laughs> it's, a, it's a bipartisan effort. <laughs> so so the, the kind of anodyne semi-liberal sensibilities that you see in those movies, they get more concentrated in the Oscar bait. Right. And I, I started noticing this probably. For me, the movie where I thought this was most glaringly obvious was not Green Book or anything like that. It was Dallas Buyers Club, which was, you know, I saw it in Mexico. I was living in Mexico at the time when that movie came out. And um, all the, all the. Is it Tijuana Buyers Club there? Or... No, no. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Um, I, I could actually talk about international cinema because this is, this is interesting. It's really hard. If you live in some of these countries, um, to watch movies from that country in that movie in that country on a big screen, sometimes like uh, Bong Joon Ho movies and stuff will be on big screens in Korea, but the vast majority of what was in cinemas is American mass-produced movies. That's also true in Mexico. That's also true. So, what I find interesting, part of the reason why you're seeing more and more foreign cinema marketed to the u.s is while this started way back and like you remember in 1999 when we've had like our our first hong kong uh movie way with like crouching tiger him and dragon really like yeah. really getting into popular culture well what's happened since then for those movies is that if you're a, a director in korea and you're not and you're established and you're not making movies that can play in both a Korean and a U.S. audience, you probably can't even get into that many Korean theaters. Yeah. So anyway, so I saw Dallas Ballet's Club because I couldn't see a good Mexican movie because there was only like one in the entire cinema that week. <laughs> um, well, we're in the age of the multi, like the multinational corporation. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like uh, everything is kind of funded by, a very small group of companies that all have deals with each other. Right. So I mean, does, but almost everything is a Chinese Hollywood joint venture now. Like, yeah. Um, so, so you, so you have that. And with Dallas Fire club, you do get it marketed to an American sensibility, but it is an American sensibility that is very specific. Um, for the Oscars, but also for a kind of upper mid-brow NPR listening audience. And and recently, before COVID, the big example of this, and I don't mean to totally shit on this movie, but it was kind of bad, um, was Harriet, 
you know, the Harriet Tubman biopic. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, I it's didn't just, feel the need don't to bother. Watch uh, I, I I went and watched it with a with a woman I was dating who was from Peru, and we were just like, "Whoa!" We also couldn't figure out exactly who it was marketed towards because you go in and you can tell a film when you used to go in the theaters by the who it's really aimed towards by the the previews, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the previews for Harriet were a mixture of Tyler Perry movies. And like clearly Oscar bait biopics. And so I was like, wait, this is a weird audience, but it's gotten that specific. Um, what I found interesting about the last few years is I think a lot that a lot of people are watching genre movies now because there's more innovation in them. They yeah. are not aimed at an international market. And so they're fairly safe. Um, and then while I don't think this will last forever in the past three or four years, we've had Netflix and Amazon step in and fill the gap of what used to be the new line cinema sort of like quasi prestige movie. Yeah. Um, you know, or, or a quasi experimental movie because they want to generate more and more content for their own platforms. Now, of course, eventually what they're going to do is bait and switch it out for, blockbusters and that we've already seen them start pivoting that way but I mean, like boys i'd say on i mean on amazon is kind of a an early attempt at that i think although for a very specific audience you know what i mean like it's uh since it's a garth ennis um comic like i don't think it's you know for like everybody but like you know it still is kind of a um i mean it's a superhero show for a pretty mass audience <laughs> right although a not easily offended audience because there's some pretty fucked up things in there. I mean, maybe not fucked up like the comics are, but <laughs> it's still Garth Ennis. So what I think we're, we're going to see in the in the immediate future, I, I want to actually do think the comic book movie seems to be dying down, right? Like, um, I don't, I think that's mostly good because like, I haven't seen a good DC movie in forever. Um, and... Honestly, also, the Marvel movies are so written by committee that even though they get good directors, you can't really tell. Um, I remember learning that... that um, I'd say, I think, I'd say Thor, Thor Ragnarok was a, um, was an exception to that. Right. You can tell that's Taika Waititi. But yeah, th- but, but yeah it's... But the rest of them, like, like everything... It is, a, it is a committee sort of deal. Um, what, did, what did you think of... Um, Black Panther. Like, I'm sure you have <laughs> plenty of more complex thoughts on that. Oh, um, well, I think it was great that it broke Chad Bozeman out, even though we didn't get a long time of him being in the public eye. Yeah. I think, I think it was, I think as a cultural touchstone moment, it's important to have a black lead character in the Marvel movies. I actually think the Black Panther specific version of Afrofuturism is, I mean, one, it was invented by a white guy, but two, like, which isn't in and of itself, not, not necessarily bad. It's just something that people have to actually kind of deal with. And two, it, um, it's a kind of reactionary futurism. I mean, it's basically feudal. Yeah. Um, and, and European feudal at that, like, it's not really, you know, totally, based in African traditions, even though the design of the movie was um, also making uh, Killmonger 
uh, a national liberationist and <laughs> and then making the good guy the CIA just can't really be dropped. I mean, that's well, such I think I think even more even even more complicated than that. Um, that complicated it for me, like as someone that was kind of you know thinking more about like geopolitics during the time that I finally saw it. Like neoliberalization is the end of the movie. You know what I mean? Like right. they've they've oh, like it, it's like oh wow they're in isolation and they're like grappling with the fact that they're in isolation and like they have more money than anyone else because obviously you know they are selling uh you know they're selling like their minerals to like two people like the vibranium or whatever. But like but at the same time like they're kind of isolated and they're trying to like decide whether to break out, like almost like a, a Saudi Arabia type deal where they're like trying to decide whether or not to like, you know, uh, liberalize, I guess, and open themselves up to like the rest of the world in that way. Not in like a way that would actually, you know, um, uh, help out anyone that's actually living there, but like in an economic way, like the economic system, like, should we stay isolated or should we like open ourselves up? You know what I mean? Like, so the, the, the end of the movie is literally like, Oh, well, you know what? We've decided we're going to like, neoliberal neoliberalized but like the worst of both worlds like well, we're gonna yeah, open so, up like a, so, we're gonna open up an office that like would would like give us maybe status in the un <laughs> well i mean ba- to look at it and they do have status in the un in uh you know like they 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 show you that like in um in captain america civil war they have status in the kind of in the un by that, <laughs> by that point so it's um You know, my response to that reading is complicated because you basically are left with two reactionary visions. One is an isolationist super kingdom that can somehow stay secret in the world. Uh, And and from all stances of economics, um, even with vibranium would not be viable. Well, they have one, I mean, they have one big contractor that they're selling to. Right. And somehow that's keeping them afloat, which when you really think about it, you know, Stark Stark Industries is their like one contractor, so it's the U.S. military. So they're right. selling they're selling vibranium to the U.S. military, and then we're kind of assuming that like the U.S. military doesn't know where their force field is, but they're also so selling. you're making a good <laughs> a good argument that that Wakanda is Saudi Arabia. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, re- literally, like yeah. reactionary kingdom that continues to exist because <laughs> it has one commodity that can that it can sell. Um, I mean, it doesn't do some of the other like weird labor practices and what, it, but but then again, well, we you don't really, we never really see that part. We, we of it, don't right? really like, understand how its economy could possibly work, actually. So yeah, um, but like we never really, they never really get into the economics of it. They never really get into um, like you don't really see that much of that part of it. You know what I mean? You see the ruling family in a similar way to like you know we hear a lot about like MBS and we don't hear a lot about like you know what I mean? Like a, a lot about like. I mean, you hear about people on the ground in Saudi Arabia, but like that's kind of their focus. That's their like. It's almost like you're watching a PR campaign. <laughs> it's like look at this. Look at this dynamic new leader that's deciding. He's a superhero, and he's deciding whether or not they should neoliberalize. And you know what? He might do it. He might do it. He might. He might. He might let the CIA in because African countries always uh, benefit from letting the CIA in. Right. <laughs> You can, totally um, trust, you can totally trust the. the I mean, I guess, I guess the, the the good side is because of vibranium, they won't have to take a loan from the IMF. But <laughs> uh, it's 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 such a fantasy land, and the geopolitics of Marvel movies make it that way. But Marvel movies, as we've said, can never make sense because they're marketed to so many different groups. They don't want to offend anybody. Um, even 
they don't even want to have to edit it heavily for like Middle Eastern audiences. If you've ever gone to the movie theater in the Middle East, which I doubt you have, but I have, and um, everything is chopped. <laughs> everything is chopped to. Uh, it's chopped up. It's just you know, it's it's censored and it's censored obviously. Yeah. Um, and but, I mean, I'd, I'd assume probably, um, you know, uh, like the Chinese government or any other, like you know, any government that like is it in international markets, but also like you know has a more uh, censorious approach, I guess, to Hollywood cinema. Like, I would assume that there there comes a point where if you push things too far, they can't censor it anymore, and they just. You know, because you hear about that all the time with with Disney movies and like other big movies and and the CCP. They're like at some point, like they're just like, you know what? We can't we can't cut this up anymore. Like this can't enter the market, right? Which, which I mean, the thing is though, like making that point, like you know, the, if if you do that too much to the U.S., it's not like we're any different. Like you just won't get your movie funded. You're right. I mean, we, we don't we don't censor stuff. We just won't we we just won't fund it. Yeah. Um. I was uh, I was watching the Heart of Darkness um, documentary about Apocalypse Now the other night because we're doing Tropic Thunder tomorrow mm-hmm. for um, for Movie Night Extravaganza with like the left flank vets. So I was watching I was rewatching the Heart of Darkness documentary where they where they ended up going to the Philippines, Coppola, because um you know they the U.S. military just wouldn't fund Apocalypse Now. They're like, yeah, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> so he gave like a bunch of his own raised money and his friends' money to like. Marcos in the Philippines, mm-hmm. <laughs> just to be, and then borrowed a bunch of fucking military equipment. It's uh, it's kind of amazing how the DOD has so much control over what we do. I mean, th- I think that's partially why we haven't gotten a good like. We don't have the same kind of sentiment that's going to come out of like the Iraq War and the War on Terror that we did in the boomer um, 70s and 80s, you know, auteur period from from Coppola to uh, to early Oliver Stone because the DOD itself is way too involved. So the most critique you could possibly do um, of the of the military is going to be something like, I don't know, uh, Zero Dark Thirty, which is really a celebration of it. Um, and so that's, that is why I think we don't have that. Because people have asked, like, why don't we have films coming out of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars like we do from the Vietnam wars? The, uh, Afra- uh, uh, the Iraq and Afghanistan wars are longer. We still lost them. Uh, well, our, it's hard to say what we did. Like, like yeah. yeah, we lost them, but like we didn't even lose them. Like we had no mission yeah. after the initial one in the first place. Like, yeah. and, and so but, the best you can do is think, start I think it. it's important to note that like wars don't end anymore. So mm-hmm. that's another reason why, I mean, since Vietnam, like wars don't end anymore. Like we don't end our occupation of a country. You know what I mean? Like there's oh, like even when a war ends, like there's still troops on the ground, like in Iraq. <laughs> so it's like you know these movies that like maybe you know the vietnam war kind of ended quote unquote and you know there was a small period of time where those movies could slip through it did take like a decade but like there was a small period of time where like you know distrust for the american military the, like, the american government had gotten um like it, it kind of pushed things out a little bit and i mean the movies kind of snuck around and got like sketchier funding sources but like you know, um, I, I think that like we, it's not going to happen anymore because like there's never going to be a moment where the U.S. military leaves its guard down like that again. 
Um. <laughs> well, I think there's a whole lot. I mean, Afghanistan's obviously over, and I, I, I maybe I, I'm not so sanguine on the U.S. military's expansionist possibilities anytime real soon, despite its massive capacity. Um, our our opponents have nuclear weapons. It's hard to bully people around when they also have the same weapons you do. But yeah, you what also I also have someone that I mean you have another country that can legitimately economically at least compete with the US that right it obviously isn't pushing for a war. Um although you know we a lot of people here are pushing for a war like are are smart enough not to be pushing for a war but also have some kind of economic leverage that like you know the USSR never had <laughs> whatsoever. So they couldn't, what, what, get, they couldn't even get blue jeans and whatever. Like, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> what what you get now is the most meaningful commentary on the Iraq war is probably going to come out of speculative fiction shows from 10 years ago, like Battlestar Galactica, which is not even a particularly coherent show, but at least has something to say specifically about the Iraq war. Um, and that, that has been what's been leading for a while, this whole shift from prestige uh, t- uh, film to prestige television, but that's over too, right? Like prestige television is no longer pre- like it's it's no longer that distinctive. It began and it began and ended with The Sopranos. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, t- to me, you have like three shows that really that really exemplified it actually, and, and they all came out before we were really talking about what prestige television was. That's Sopranos, Sopranos the Wire, Wire, The Shield, like. I, I put Breaking Bad in there too. Yeah, Breaking Bad. Um but Breaking Bad Breaking Bad goes furthest into the period where people started talking about prestige TV as prestige yeah. TV. Um Breaking Bad is also um I, I really I love that it's kind of a it's basically a case for why like we need Medicare for all. Like mm-hmm. if you really read into the fact that, you know, uh Walter White's original like you can argue that like it's always in him the inherent evil to you know, um, you know, push all moral boundaries aside and turn into like this uh, drug kingpin, or drug manufacturing monster. Like you could argue that, but the thing that pushes him into it is not being able to pay medical bills. <laughs> like, right. and and you know, there's all the complicated feelings that go along with that. Like, you know, his own feelings of failure and his own self-destructive qualities throughout his life. But like, the thing that pushes him into it is still not being able to pay massive medical bills and like wanting to stay alive and being like, hey, maybe I shouldn't. Um, which, which is ironic, obviously, that he's, you know, getting involved in a thing that could very easily get him killed. But, like, you know, like, and, and like, is not wanting to die from cancer. Like, he'll, mm-hmm. he'll, he'll get riddled full of bullets or something if he has to, but he doesn't want to die from the cancer. And then he's like, you know what? It's time. <laughs> One of the things I would say about, you know, this brings us back to our topic, though. You and I have discussed a lot of Alex Cox movies, and uh, I would say... And again, this has become there's there's a weird sort of uh, red cream waste about this um, with the streaming platforms because Netflix and Amazon used to have tons of really interesting independent cinema on it. They've been weeding it out, making it harder to submit. But their competitors, Tubi, and uh, their downstream competitors are now picking up the slack. Um, to get content so then they can do the same thing. So you're going to have this kind of rat race, particularly now that everybody has their own streaming platform. Yeah. Um, 
which kind of sucks that they have to pay for all this fucking streaming platform. Well, it, it, it's <laughs> just, you see, and obviously I don't pay for a lot of them, but what you see is the same thing that um, that you see in every other aspect of multimedia consumption these days is hyper nichization. Like, like, you know, I mean, we're a podcast. You, you can't get more niche, but um, yeah. But there is this left, this way left that, independent media, not left even independent just like media. A, yeah. Um. So you can't get more niche than that, and what you have is this: you have basically the replication of of cable packages, but now very specific. It's what libertarians actually wanted 10 years ago, which was like, I can pick a la carte, which cable, which channels I want and just buy it. And now I'm like, yeah, but you didn't think about what that would mean when every channel tried to do it. Um, Well, it's the same thing that they talk about with like medical services. Like they're like, Oh, wouldn't it be great if we could just decide what medical procedures we wanted and, and get rid of the other charges charges. And it's like, yeah, but like when every organ fails at once, then you're paying for stuff for every organ. Like that doesn't work the way you think it's going to work. <laughs> well, um, I would say that in the United States on the medical front, we have the worst system on the planet and there's literally, it doesn't even work like a normal market. So um, it is sort of the worst of all worlds. Cause yeah, there's no price point either. Well, it's a, um, I mean, it, it comes from a, a bill that the you know medical insurance companies wrote themselves, and then Obama was like, "Wouldn't it be great if we had this?" And it's literally like a shiny example of like you know medical companies being able to like write their own laws, and then like you know what I mean like insurance companies literally writing the insurance system and going, "Listen, these are the things that we want. Try to shoehorn them in through the ACA." And I mean, it's it's nice that like I mean I have Medicaid, so you know what I mean. Like I can't. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm benefiting, I guess, in some small way from that system, but like, not really like, you know what I mean? Like not in the sense of like overall, like our, our entire, (laughs) our medical system fucking sucks. Right. Well, one of the things this brings me to maybe to talk a little bit about, and then we'll pivot back into movies, but like the ability, the ease of making media now across the board is the easiest it's ever been. I, you know, when I started doing media, I was in college radio in like the early 2000s. I couldn't do it independently. There'd be no way you could have that equipment. Like, yeah. it would have cost you fifty, sixty thousand dollars You're getting um, involved with like a public radio station. Right. Like, if you can. Like, you know what I mean? Right. Like, or like right. I mean, uh, although I was thinking about like how movies like pump up the volume don't work anymore because like, Oh, it'd be really easy to do it. But like, who cares if you start our podcast? Um, but so there is a way in which we're, we have more content to watch than ever. The people who make it often don't benefit from it. And we've only found a way to benefit from it by having a platform that will allow people to make micro payments to us in aggregate. Um, yeah. And then, and then it's the same thing with like every single channel having a, you know what I mean? Like having, having a, a, like a, a subsystem of their own or like a, you know, a payment system of their own. Oh, like yeah. You're like, you're, you're now competing with like 15 different 
other, you know, no, well, even in the emancipation network where we have, since we don't have a master stream and we don't put, we don't have a master um, Patreon just to subscribe. I think to, uh, if you wanted full access to all, uh, all uh, emancipation network podcast, it would probably be about $60 us a month. Like, um, to all, to, to subscribe to, to all of them, you know, Swampside, GIU, uh, from Alpha to Omega, Barn Blog, um, and almost every network's like that. And then you think about that there's also independent shows. And so there's like no way to support everybody you want to support. Like, yeah. Um, and, and it's a very weird model what we do too. I mean, like right now, for example, I basically put all my effort into to making shows so that people will support me for shows. It's basically the stuff that I would put on the DVD extras if we were in the nineties, like, <laughs> um, so the, the point of that just is like, we've seen this niche marketization across the board in some ways it is good for creatives, except now creatives have no money. Yeah. I mean, when, when you hear about the kind of money that they were given to some of these auteurs, um, in the seventies, you, you're, you're, and also, when you start adjusting for inflation, your draw just your jaw just drops. You're like, so the studio system failed. They had tons of money. People needed material, so they were just throwing it at people and letting them make interesting art. But with with uh, with uh, questionable ethics of making it, and like with no real uh, price controls, which is kind of yeah. Questionable. I mean, we talked about um, we did a that long stream on uh, Halloween last night, and Mm -hmm. like part of my research into like how Halloween was made was like John Carpenter kind of went to a bunch of producers that he was like friends with, but um, one of the one of the producers was was um, I forget the guy's name, but he had worked with the Libyan government for a really long time, and like his his own personal movies that he directed were all funded by Gaddafi, like The Message, that movie. Um, Mm -hmm. he was making like these desert epics, like these that like. Pro, pro. Uh, I mean, not necessarily pro Libyan because you know he's not like, but like that, like, it, like the, the Libyan government was funding these, um, these movies that he was making, and <laughs> like I, I don't know, like sources like that, you know what I mean, like are, that are like trying to get into like American cinema um, as like a as like an art form and trying to make a quick buck that way because we really, we really, really, you really could in the seventies, like you just kind of make like exploitation film and be like, you know what, like I made a a good amount of money like art house cinemas grabbed it or like you know we got into theaters somewhere like we funded it like we have connections somewhere like <laughs> well, what's interesting about this for me is to think about this in terms of media landscape right um it has killed stuff like the gatekeepers like alex cox can get a movie made if he wanted to now whereas during after after nicaragua gate um for alex <laughs> cox it was impossible for him to make a movie without a ton of of footing, he couldn't do it through any like big Hollywood studios or even even downstream from that for a long time. Um, probably still can't. But the, you know, but he's made movies independently yeah. since then because it's a lot easier to do. So, on one hand, we have more of that. But in another hand, on the other hand, it's hard as hell to find out about it. Yeah. I, um, unless, unless it's entered in like a film festival, which is its own gatekeepers that aren't necessarily the same gatekeepers that are you know. That exists right now in in um, 
in theaters, like, or like in big theaters, you know what I mean? Like, or, or in, you know, all of these, uh, distribution, like, you know, companies, but like, it still has its own, there still are its own gatekeepers. Um, and there's still so many, there's so many film festivals that like, how do you really find out about that? Many of them, you know what I mean? Like, like, yeah, if you're not in Sundance or, or, um, South by Southwest, uh, there's a thousand film festivals and, you know, um, but where where are people going to see it? Like, like there's so many film festivals that I don't always know what's going on with them. Um, yeah. uh, I know that people go there to scout for like to get basically material for for th- again things like Tubi or back in the day Amazon Prime, but even that's going to be really limited. Um, I mean, I've heard the returns on some of those. Like, you, you—they're not even breaking even anymore. That's usually—it's usually a money losing proposition to even make a small film. Um, yeah, and and I mean, you have stuff like A two four that you can kind of submit stuff to, or you have like like Blumhouse that did the new Halloween. Like, you know, like that, that aren't necessarily doing like that aren't necessarily trying to get movies from the same directors that like big Hollywood studios are. But it's still kind of a very small selection that they're actually going to so, go with. So what's interesting about that though, as you think about it, we've regressed in the way we actually distribute movies because the distribution chains are a lot more like the early theater days. Mm-hmm. Whereas like you would have art house movies in the forties and fifties and sixties, and you'd have like B movies to get tack onto a drive through, which thanks to COVID that's back to happening. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and so what you have now is you have Blumhouse basically producing quality but B movies. That's what they would have been in an, in yeah. an earlier market. And you have art house cinema being produced by A4. Um, and then you have far you also have farm films also filling that niche, which they've always done, actually. So so you're in this really this really kind of strange place where we develop these master distribution chains just to break them back down so everything actually works. Like an even lower profit margin version of how we started. I mean, it's similar to literature. Like we think about the heyday of like the writers where you could live as a writer. That's actually a very small period of time from between like the, the like the 1950s to the 1980s. Yeah. Um, the, the the advent of the mass market paperback period. And at now, the time, the kind of money was flooding in from like the um, economy, like kind of working for like a, a small like a bigger population than it did for before and after that. <laughs> right. And so, you know, but it's basically during the, the, the waves of largesse that you still had after the post-war social contract. contract. Yeah. And that's, that's actually. Some, some middle-class workers finally had time to read. Um, right. And, and, <laughs> and they were producing books for cheap enough that you could buy them and then they'd be disposable. Like the, I mean, I remember when mass market paperbacks were $2, which. Yeah. Which admittedly is like seven dollars now, but still, um, yeah, it it it's an interesting problem to have where you have um, all these highly controlled distribution chains, but there's so many of the constant content, and it's easy to get lost. So I like what I what I do for fun is to watch a lot of horror. And sci-fi movies that are like on Shutter, on you know, not on the top ten of Netflix, but on the next run down, 
And I find a lot of really good, interesting films through doing that, and a lot of good foreign films through doing that. But I have to make an active effort to do so. Um, and I guess that's somewhat similar to back in the day, like uh, in the 80s when you had um, even major uh, movie studios like producing like Alice Cox movies. But you kind of had to go you kind of had to find them and find a place to see them or find a place to get, find the VHS. They weren't usually easy to do. Um, VHSs weren't largely produced. Um, I mean, that's kind of also where you got kind of different scenes, right? Like, um, Mm -hmm. like the punk scene had their own directors, like, you know, like people that kind of hung around that, like different music scenes or different art scenes would kind of pass stuff around between them. Um, Which, you know, was an interesting marketing strategy, I think for, uh, but but like would never get outside of those groups unless you had someone from like a major distribution thing making it easy to access them, which of course they wouldn't have. <laughs> I mean, that, but what was also interesting is what you saw in in these time periods was the distribution chains really break down. So the reason why the auteur thing happens in the seventies is the studio system completely falls apart. Yeah, uh, the reason why you have an interesting. Uh, set of movies in the late 90s through the early aughts is actually because the blockbusters stopped bringing in as much money and there was a consolidation of movie theaters. Um, I think I think we will actually, it's as bad as I think the movies the last few years were, I think we're actually probably going to look at this time and from like last year onto the next few years as a similar time period because um Disney and all them have to change their model. Like they cannot rely on the seats and the, the the seats in the movies all over the world model right now. And they know it. That's why they're that's why so, so many pro- properties are getting moved to Disney Plus or getting expanded out to prestige uh, in quotations TV, etc. Um, but I think this is going to leave us in an interesting place for like actual independent cinema. Like you know. Um, an uneven filmmaker who's very interesting. And we, you know, we both like Alex Cox um, who could, who basically kind of got all of his other movies backed off of two um, yeah. Re- repo man and Sid and Nancy. Um, and Sid well, he was and Nancy- kind of the, he was the sacrificial lamb kind of right. Like the Reagan, the Reagan era's sacrificial, like right. that after oh, yeah. kind of bursting on the scene uh, after repo man was like the newest it director kind of, was very publicly um, kicked out of and blacklisted from Hollywood. Like they were kind of making the point that they could still do that, which is kind of a power grab for them because, you know, things have fallen apart to the point where they were like, listen, we need to, you know, number one, it's pissed off a a moment where you can't really make anything that's not um, at at its core patriotic. Like, uh, like there's a lot of, I mean, like Verhoeven was making movies at that point, but like, you know, like there, there really isn't much that you can really like point to and be like, people want to see this. Like people, they decided people wanted to see more optimistic stuff. They decided people wanted to see, you know, like the comedy has to either be absurdist or like, you know, the jokes have to be like slipped in about political issues. Like I talked about that um, with, uh, with Jander world. Like I was on um, bad takes, like, and we watched, uh, we watched uh, tape heads and Mm -hmm. like everything kind of had to be absurdist. And like, you know, if you were going to slip like any kind of political messaging into it, or I mean, so like you also had that like strain of like oh corporate greed is bad but it never really went into like how to fix it it's just like isn't it bad that we have so much corporate greed now um and as, well, as isn't that and, true of like anti-capitalist cinema right now yeah 
but but so I'm saying like, but I'm saying that moment specifically for Alex Cox, he kind of becomes mm-hmm. this like sacrificial lamb that they're like, this is this has gone too far, and we're gonna very publicly shun you to scare other leftist filmmakers from um, <laughs> showing anything like that. And they've well, done it to it? Oliver Stone too, to some degree. I mean, throughout his career, a bunch of yeah. times. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> To, to a certain degree, yes. Although Oliver Stone is pretty good at shooting himself in the foot. Yeah. But um, I, I will I will not push back on that. I just want to complicate it a little bit. Um, there's been... You could have been a leftist filmmaker in the art house scene at any time in the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. That's been the one place it's been safe to go. Because interestingly, and I, I I don't think this is deliberate, but it's something that I find fascinating. Leftist cinema is okay in popular culture if it is aimed at snobby rich people. Yeah. I mean it's the it's the like, you know, um populist streak, I guess. Uh right. anti elite yep. streak that, that kind of goes into um like the American mind a lot. <laughs> Like, when you think about, so I think it's interesting you bring up, like, uh, Oliver Stone, who I think, um, his penchant for playing with conspiracy theories aside, um, and his love of Russia aside, um. Well, one, one very particular Russian, anyway. Yeah. Um, but. <laughs> probably, but probably the worst one to have a, a, a an, right. an ironic love for. <laughs> um, but one thing I would, uh. Um, I've seen people telling me that Joker is uh, is uh, subversive, and I think it's funny. Joker is subversive because it's copying movies from the seventies that were actually subversive. It's, it has no actual yeah. subversive content to it. The director doesn't really know what he wants to make. Sorry well, I mean, to bother you. The thing guys. is that Scorsese agreed to come on as a producer for Joker, and then mm-hmm. backed out of it very fast and was like, "Oh, sorry, I don't have time for this." So, so they wrote a Scorsese movie, and then Scorsese was like, "Yeah, I don't. I've, I've made this movie already." Like. I'm doing yeah, it's, it's it's the kings of comedy and Taxi Driver made into one movie. Yeah, like, um, and they're like, we're still gonna make a Scorsese movie, a seventies Scorsese. Um, so one of the things I find interesting about all that is that we have had interesting anti-capitalist cinema in the last. We have Parasite. You have Star of the Body. Bother you, um, Snowpiercer. I think was- Snowpiercer. Uh, but, but even then, even then, I mean, we watched all those uh, Bong Joon Ho interviews. He is he has, he's just very good at the tap dance of getting around. Um, you know, uh, he puts his thoughts into the film, and then he's kind of very good at getting around actually talking about them as a director, which I think would isolate him from um, audiences that have by necessity embraced his filmmaking. Yeah, uh, well, I think it would isolate him from also. I mean, I think that's not just for the U.S. audience that he's tapping around; it's also for the Korean one. Yeah, Given well, no, he's like there's a there's a clip that we didn't watch where he's talking to uh he gets honored by President Moon and he's like pretty deferential. He's like, wow, I can't believe I'm sitting next to the president. Like this is this is amazing. Not that he wouldn't have maybe supported Moon versus you know the more conservative, uh you know South Korean candidate that you know was like far more U.S. backed at the time. But like you know um I think that like still like he knows how to he knows how to flatter his audience so that he doesn't really get into trouble. And then you know puts his thoughts into the film itself. But again, I, I, we can we find parallels to that in like Kubrick, who who the hell knows what Kubrick's actual politics really were? Yeah, 
I mean, I mean we do know, a, we do know, but like you can't get it from his films, actually. I could I could argue probably that Kubrick, I mean, might not have actually had politics in some ways, like um in the sense of like he would get fixated on a subject and then he would do all the research possible into that subject. I mean, he's definitely anti-war, like uh you know, I mean he made enough anti-war films for that to be the case. Like someone mentioned Path of Paths of Glory in the um yeah in the chat, like which is an amazing movie. But like so he's definitely anti-war, he's definitely anti-nuclear uh, prol- proliferation. But, like, you know, besides that, like, he doesn't seem, I mean, there seems to be a populism to it, but, like, there isn't, like, a, I don't, I mean, who knows? If it's a populism to it, but he also hates people. Yeah. Like, so, I mean, I think, um, I the, think the, it's, the populism is more, I think, anti-elitist than it right. is. Right. Yeah. yeah it, it's anti-elitist because that's the people that he knows and he hates them. I, I do like that he would he would he would force all of the um he would force all of the people that he hated because he hated actors he hated you know Hollywood type people so he'd force them to come all the way to England to be around him and then he'd kind of torture them for a certain amount of time and then send them back like you know what I mean like it's not like he could like it's not even like he he um I don't know he's he's bringing all the people that he hates to him giving them like a, a nice little torture session and then being like all right go go back I'm not ever gonna see you again. Go back to uh, to the U.S. and you know, rot. <laughs> um, w- one of the things I find interesting about leftist uh, co- political commentary, because the other thing I'm going to tell people um, deliberately to offend my audience right now, uh, most leftist political analyzations of, mo- of movies are midwit, pedantic, and lazy. Um which uh, I'm not going to name out specific writers at Jacobin, um, but I have, I've, I've read writers that are basically like, this would be, this is really good, but only if it talked about liberation and socialism, would it truly meet it? And I'm just, I mean, I don't work at Jacobin anymore, so you can, (laughs) Um, well, I'm, it's not, it's not, not all criticism at Jacobin's like this, actually. They're two, they're two major film critics. Don't do this right now, but they've had people in the past that I've made fun of. Um, who I don't even think are leftists anymore, but I'm not going to go into that. Um, so you would see that strain of a popular criticism and you'd see this strain of also like trying to glom on to very big neoliberal movies and make them about some issue that we care about, which of course they're going to kind of be because neoliberal movies still have to reflect the society that they're marketing to. Like there's well, no I mean, way. Nomadland's a perfect is a perfect uh, neoliberal neoliberal and like liberal humanist movie. I'd say, mm-hmm. um, you know, like not at any point being like offending Amazon because they want to film in Amazon fulfillment centers. I mean, uh, presumably that's the reason. You know what I mean? Like, but also kind of you know, oh, we care about homelessness. We care about humanizing. Like we we care about empathy. We care about humanizing like the human spirit. But it's like there's no strategy. Like there's no. Um, like at the end of it, you don't leave the movie feeling like you've learned anything about what we should do about the like homelessness crisis or like how we could economically empower people. Just right. Like, oh, well, I hope they're, they ho- I hope that like, Amazon pays them more next time. <laughs> we we don't even learn right. We don't even learn negatively. Like we don't even get a full negative picture to go like, okay, well, we don't know how to fix it, but we know we hate that guy. Like, yeah. Which, admittedly, like movies like Network and stuff in the seventies did at least know to tell you who to hate. Um, but I find this 
I find this period sort of interesting because I, I think another thing that we have right now is there's more movie commentary than there is movies. I mean, you and I are both guilty of it. I go on your show. Um, but I know people who will listen to movie podcasts for movies they don't watch. Like, ever. Now, that baffles me. Unless it's a very terrible movie. But honestly, I usually go and watch those because I like... My, my, my personal taste spectrum is... Uh, <laughs> To make a bad joke, it is uh, it is what pe- some people might call a red brown alliance. Um, <laughs> it it is very trashy, low art, even somewhat re- reactionary movies. Um, the kind of stuff that gets on bad takes. Um, and why does this get made? You know those kind of movies. And then, uh, you know, my my other taste is high art. You know, and, and there's a lot of people like that. I think it's a pretty common actual spectrum of taste. Um, particularly when you feel alienated by like, man, Marvel movies are like candy, like a little bit, a little bit tastes pretty good. A lot of it, I'm now sick and my teeth are rotting and I'm a lot dumber than I was when I started. Yeah. Um, I mean, I kind of, I, I watched, um, I mean, I didn't catch all of them, but I watched up until like end game. And then I was like, I, I was like, I don't know. I, I never really want to see one of these again. Like I've, I've had my fill of it. I know too many characters now, like. You know what I mean? Like, like not just like I mean, obviously, I always do like the the main like the main you know superheroes that the movies are based off of. But like, there's just so many characters at some point. You're like, all right, I know so many Marvel characters now. Like, I don't need to know anymore. I never want to learn anymore. I don't care what happens to any of these people. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, and also, yeah, at this point, you're like, why am I not just watching television? Like, if it's this episode. In fact, I feel like actually now. The long form story television, uh, long form storytelling has moved to television, and most film is episodic. It's like the 1930s, actually, <laughs> like literally, which is also interesting. Was the last time we had like long superhero movies, right? Like, like the serial, and we talk about them as the, the 30 serials, like the nickel serials. It's a very similar, it's a very similar kind of movie making, except this costs a lot more money to make. Yeah. I don't know. And this, and this is kind of, I mean, I, I think that a little bit before like the Hays code came around, there was a little bit more freedom for like the first few decades of, of filmmaking. There's a little bit more freedom of what you can make. Although they're still kind of discovering like, Oh wow, we could do this with, with movies and have like, you know, like, so that's an interesting time that ends up kind of very quickly becoming like a, you know, because of the cold war and because of moralistic, uh, you know, interpretations of things, I guess becomes like a, you know, then you can't really make anything that isn't within a very small parameter. Well, yeah, and, and, it, and actually then it opens back up again at the end of like the studio system falls apart and it opens back up again, but it's like, right. It's actually really interesting to watch pre Hayes code movies from the thirties. Yeah. If you can get, if you can get them like, cause it's it, interesting it, to watch silent movies really when you can get them. Yeah. Oh yeah. Cause yeah. They're, they're, they're way more interesting and kind of salacious than you thought they were going to be. Yeah. Um, it's, it was, uh, I, I went through this period. I, I teach a film course of high school students uh, every couple of years. Um, and I went back and showed them like a lot of these early silent movies, um, Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin and um, even the, the kind of quasi-fash ones uh, like Intolerance. Um, <laughs> uh, I say, you know, uh, don't get mad at us for making Birth of a Nation, people. You're not tolerant enough. 
Um, but actually, what's interesting about Intolerance is part of that movie is actually pretty good. But the, it's watching those early pre Hayes Code movies, and you're just like, whoa, they were a lot more interesting than we give them credit for. I don't know why I didn't know more about this. Um, well, Birth of a Nation even kind of cemented D.W. Griffith as like, you know, like the, the prestige filmmaker of his time. Like nobody had made anything to that level. Like, I mean, it's literally like a it's, it's a lost cause, um, you know, fucking train wreck. Like, you know what I mean? Like and deeply racist and, and kind of single handedly kind of invented certain parts of like the way that Southerners were, you know, dressing as the KKK, like all of that. But like, you know, still he was considered like, you know, even decades later, like like Sunset Boulevard, we just uh we just watched for a stream. And even even in Sunset Boulevard, they're like, Oh, there are only three directors at that time. And like, you know, one of them was DW Griffith. And then, you know, like he's kind of the the the, the top of the line. Um, you don't really have that many options, I guess, but still. <laughs> yeah, well, you think about how crazy ambitious intolerance is, where it's like in four different timelines and like um it's it's a crazy sort of deal and it's really interesting to see these time periods where things break down um i think verhoven's another you mentioned verhoven earlier verhoven is my favorite popular artist because he somehow captures the spirit of high art in a totally low art format yeah um and you realize that he kind of i didn't i didn't realize that he he has the ability without even completely understanding a culture to watch a culture's films, mimic them and satirize something essential about that culture. And I say that because it's not, he didn't just do it with America. He's also done it with French cinema. If you've seen L, I haven't, yeah, I haven't. L is like a takedown of the French erotic thriller, like a perfect takedown, but you have to know French erotic theorists, uh, thrillers to really get what it's doing. It, and it, it's, I actually, it redeems showgirls for me. I went back and watched showgirls and then all of a sudden like, Oh, I get what this is doing now. This is like, this is making fun of our stupid erotic thrillers. Mm -hmm. Um, so Verhoeven is, is amazing like that. Um, and he also pretty much gets sacrificed after, after, um, Starship Troopers. Yeah. Um, He makes one more movie right after that. And then, and then and he only makes movies that, in Europe now. Yeah, right? but no, he makes one more movie after Starship Troopers in the U.S. Right. Um, it's the it's the I can't remember if it's the Invisible Man or something like that. Wait, hold on. Um, I mean, keep going. I'm just I'm just gonna look up. No, I, he, I, I because like Starship Troopers and Showgirls were held against him. Um, Hollow Man. Hollow Man. Yeah, Hollow Man. Yeah. But Hollow Man is an Invisible Man movie. Um, yeah. And again, I was also playing with tropes, and it didn't, it didn't do very well. And he kind of just was like, "All right, I want." I like got sacrificed, but also like kind of didn't want to be in the U.S. anymore, um, <laughs> whatsoever. Yeah, um, and so it's uh it's an interesting sort of of deal that you have there with Verhoeven, um, because he was he was sneaking that stuff in and I don't think people caught how much satire was in it most of the time. Yeah. Um, and and everything was ahead of the time. Like it's the curve enough that people weren't catching on to it when the movie actually came out, like Starship Troopers, you know, Starship Troopers is done during the, the Clinton administration. Like it's not done during our, but like the Bush administration when like this kind of like, 
insane militarization is actually like you'd think we'd be talking about that during the Bush administration. He does it like a few years earlier than than even that. Like no, right. one, no one saw that coming whatsoever. Besides Verhoeven, right? Well, what's interesting? Well, I I, I don't know about that. Um, but nobody was talking about unpopular culture. I can yeah I yeah, yeah. The, you know what I mean? Like you know like movie wise like yeah yeah for cinema sure. audiences and cinema critics weren't expecting something like that to be happening that early on but, but you think about all of our good sort of like politically aware popular versus high art you know, i can think of you know and i i love higher directors my favorite director is tarkovsky like i'm i'm just as pretentious as you think i'd be but um i love movies like so uh, the thing and and watching uh, Ebert, who I don't actually think is a bad critic, tear Carpenter apart for that movie being like masculine trash. And I'm like, but it's exploring a ton of things. Um, they're weird. They were a weird bellwether, like, of, because I feel like there are times where their politics on like Siskel and Ebert are like, you know, like it was kind of reactionary. And they're like, oh, we don't get this for this reason. Like, Starship Troopers is a good example of that. Like, I remember right. being there. Like they're like, oh, we don't really get this. Like this, this doesn't make any sense to us. Like the politics of it don't make sense to them. And then there are other times where like, no, we're woke now. Like this is this is masculine trash. <laughs> what, what was interesting about about Carpenter, if you know anything about Carpenter's politics, I mean, yeah, Kurt Russell is a reactionary, and Carpenter would make, and they're good friends, and Carpenter would, you know, say that Russell was to the right of Attila the Hun, but um, but Carpenter's a a lefty. Like and yeah. he he pretty much got rolled out of Hollywood on a rail by the end of the nineties. Like, um, well, I mean, but he's kind of he mocks um, like Big Trouble in Little China. He mocks Kurt Russell like that. Mm-hmm. Kurt Russell's character is just an idiot, and he's like, "Hey, I'm going to make Kurt Russell play an idiot. He's going to play John Wayne and Kurt Russell being an idiot, and like in in a you know we're just going to throw him into a, basically like a, a Chinese." Uh, like you know, like a, a Chinese martial arts movie, and we're just gonna have him kind of bumble it, like bungle his way through it. And <laughs> so, having watched a whole lot of cinema and talked about it in depth for four months, what are you seeing emerging as cultural trends about U.S. cinema, particularly if you jump from time periods? Because I've watched a lot of '50s, '60s, and '70s and '70s cinema for you, but I also know you are dealing with modern stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the like cultural trends kind of are, are very fleeting in, in a lot of stuff. Like I don't I, I think that you know what Pascal calls like the fifty year counter revolution is a very real thing. And not only not only in the sense of like movies have gotten more militaristic, because obviously they have, funding has gotten more militaristic, obviously it has for the movies to even get made. But like at the same time, like the, the more liberal side of it is saying less. Like there was a time when liberal filmmaking in the fifties and sixties or well, 40s and 50s were union-based a lot of the time. They were, like, good labor movies, at least. They were giving, like, you know what I mean? Like, not, I mean, I wouldn't say, like, the majority of it. There's also, at the same time, like, a super reactionary uh, liberal Cold War cinema. You know what I mean? But, like, um, the, the audiences that they're talking to, it gets smaller and smaller. It gets more, I mean, as we're saying, like, workshops. Uh, things aren't really saying very much um, a lot of the time. And then also you have, you know, if you know how to find it, you have stuff that's getting better. But like, I, I don't know. I, I think that you know, there's the cultural trends in cinema are kind of the same as anywhere else. Um, I, I think that you know they 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 mirror. Like, I don't think cinema a lot of the time is ahead of the curve. 
uh, for, uh, yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Like, this is why I find a lot of the a lot of the way we talk about cinema and cinema leadership somewhat, and, and also in television too, backwards. Um, because when people are like, oh, well, you know, Greg and Dharma, uh, Dharma and Greg, and um, what's that other show, uh, that everyone says ended homophobia, um. Uh, Will and Grace. Will and Grace, yeah, not Good Arm and Greg. Will and Grace, um, and then Ellen coming out was these big cultural touchstone moments that changed the way America felt about gay people. And I'm like, I think it's the other way around. Yeah, actually, like, like I think things were changing about that, and then seeing it on television reinforced that. But our it the culture was being reflected back to us. Like, yeah. Like I've always and, thought- and it's the same thing with um that article that came out the other day that everyone was roasting, where mm-hmm. that uh that one writer was like, oh, I wasn't like she was an Asian woman. And she was like, oh, I wasn't attracted to Asian men until I saw um Korean dramas. Mm-hmm. Did you see that article that everybody was like just trashing on the on on Twitter the other day? Yeah, it's like um I think I think critics are like, oh well, really like like culture is leading us because that's they're they're fixated on it all the time. They're writing about it. They're thinking about it. Like oh, culture is leading us. Culture is never leading us. Like what's happening is reflected back to us as a mirror. And I think that the the best thing that really, I mean, movies can really do is they can be a really good mirror. Like it could be like certain cultural trends that are good can be reflected back to us in a way that like people that maybe aren't thinking about those ideas are something like, oh, but like it's not inventing those ideas. It never will be. <laughs> right. I mean, and so that's why I find this whole dialogue about culture somewhat, you know, strange. I'm like, no, you change the culture, you change and to change the culture, you have to change more than culture. And the movies will change towards that, not the other way around. I mean, if you make a movie that's super progress, I mean, and there are, there are movies that are truly ahead of the curve. They don't get marketed that much. You don't find out about them usually for like 10, 15 years when they're not ahead of the curve anymore. Like, um, the interesting, the interesting thing that with like the forties and fifties cinema, um, for a very brief moment and like labor cinema is like for the first time really ever. I mean, of course there were things that were incredibly bad doing this as well, but there are, there are moments where like there's union filmmaking for like the first time. Like, you know what I mean? Films about unions. They're like, wow, you should join a union. Like there's a bunch of them that, that get made. Like FDR understood to like make the new deal work. He had to make a bunch of like government made films. Like, you know what I mean? Like for the only, for really the only time I think in our, uh, in our history, like the, the aims of the government were positive enough that there's like interesting movies that you're not like, oh wow, this is this is incredibly um this is incredibly reactionary trash. Now, like because the military is taking control of that side of it, it's all incredibly reactionary trash when it when it is something that is um directly uh corresponding with the US system. Right. And and most of the time it's it's just not, I mean it's just nothing like the, there's no political content there. And like I said, I don't think it's just the DOD that's driving that. I do think that's a lot of it, but I also think you, the fact that it has to be anodyne and like five different world markets and actually do well because of all these, you know, uh, deals, it actually really does limit the effect, the efficacy of movie to have a message because messages require context. And if you don't have that, then you normally have to rely on archetypes and tropes, which is what most comic book writing is. That's why that's been a primary IP generator for the last like decade, I think. Yeah. Or two decades, really. Um, 
I'm sure. I'm sure uh, Jay Andrew World would have all kinds of, uh, you know, comic comics are actually leading the curve comments to make here. But <laughs> I mean, there comics are like any other form of art, and I think like yeah, there's tons of great comics. But just like with movies, there's still when we say there's there's no good movies, that's not true. There's you you could still, by the way, even now if you knew how to find it and you did sleuthing. You could only ever watch good movies. Like, you don't really ever have to watch a bad movie, guys. Um, I subject myself to bad movies to understand the culture, but like, yeah. you don't. Well, have I mean, to. but you could also have a lot of good cinema that's not necessarily like progressive. Like, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have no, to be. No, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of good say. cinema isn't, honestly. Well, yeah, I'm going to talk about this a little bit. Uh, someone in the chat says, um, in some ways, the Hayes Code was less restrictive than the existing in the world market. Yes, I, I think that's actually interesting. One thing that we've learned from markets is if you're trying to make something that appeases everybody, um, you can very much make something that really, honestly, uh, doesn't have anything to say. And so there you go. Um, I I, I think the idea that there's no good movies being made is just not true. It's just they're not making it into theaters. But then why does that matter to you anymore anyway? Um, um, yeah, that's probably fair. So, someone in chess says, if you hang out with your family, you're going to watch bad movies. Um, oh, well, not at my house, but if I hang out with my, my, my parents, probably. Um, Although I'll also tell them their taste is bad. So, um, so yeah, the good, the good, the good movies point. Um, you could definitely watch, you could watch good movies that have nothing to do with politics forever. Like if you wanted to, like, right. And just not know anything happening culturally, (laughs) really. Like, I don't know. I think the, I think the will and grace thing is interesting because I think that, um, it it was never going to be ahead of the curve, but like Norman Lear's style of, uh, like of, sitcoms have influenced the way that sitcoms have been written since then like including will and grace including everything else like you know what i mean like all in the family like it it kind of embodied like the oh we're gonna have a bunch of characters in conflict with our current culture and they're all gonna kind of be arguing it out and then at the end of the episode like nothing's really gonna change but like look we've 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 shown all sides of this argument right right and and it's gonna be super super interesting to watch it right yeah (laughs) Which is interesting is, I mean, I remember when people were talking about Modern Family as like, oh, the sitcoms are about something again. I'm like, no, they've always been that. Like, you always take a trope of each type of person that exists in the predominant cultural zeitgeist. You sit them down and you write dialogue about how they interact and nothing's ever really resolved. People only grow for one episode and then immediately regress. Yeah. <laughs> and Well, because there's uh, going to be another issue that comes up you know, next week that, you know, they're not going to all of a sudden be non-reactionary on every level. They're back to being fully reactionary again. Mm-hmm. But, but then at the same time, I think um, all in the family kind of backfired on what uh, Norman Lee was trying to do because all of a sudden conservatives, I mean, conservatives still um, see themselves in Archie Bunker, like conservatives, like, cause Norman Lear was a liberal, like, you know, to the, to the, in like the, the seventies kind of way, you know what I mean? Like, kind of making a cinema, like maybe trying to shift Before the, the Aaron Sorkin types were super obnoxious. Yeah. <laughs> and, but then like conservatives would start like watching Archie Bunker and go, 
You know what? He's making a good point. Like, <laughs> but isn't that been the problem? I mean, we we talked about this with war movies, and the, uh, the chat's been talking about this with war movies now for an hour. But like, <laughs> it is very hard to make an anti-war movie that is about the war set in the war. There yeah. are some movies that have done it. Um, most of the ones that I can think of are Russian, uh, and maybe Paths of Glory, and then a couple of. Uh, oh, there's a couple of good, but most Path of the really glorious Paths of Glory is great, but I, I think. For reasons that like anti-war movies, if they were about you know our war now, like like wars now, like couldn't be like right. what, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> well, I mean it's 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 one thing you know about war movies is you usually have to set it in the last war to say anything about the current one. So like yeah, like you know, Mash is set in Korea, but it's about Vietnam, um, etc. But. What 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 I'm saying about this even more so as far as anti war movies go, it's the same thing as the Archie Bunker problem. It's the Scorsese movie problem. Scorsese is critiquing everything he makes a movie of almost inevitably, but he makes it so damn well and sympathetic that everyone kind of sympathizes with the bad guy. And you can think of it like this in both his Wall Street movies, both Wall Street and Wolf of Wall Street. People end up, you know, like quoting Gordon Gecko unironically. Mm-hmm. And it's disabled at like even uh full metal jacket. This got brought up in chat too. Gets fully recuperated by war by warmongers, and you know that's that's a well. There was a um an interesting thing is the guy that wrote uh Jarheads. I remember wrote an op ed at one point, and I read mm-hmm. it for our um for our GTA episode where we talked about um full metal jacket, where he was just like, no, every every uh drill sergeant instructor that like I had or whatever when I was in boot camp like would just quote full metal jacket lines back to us. Like that was the character, like the uh, Arlie Emery character. Like they were just like, oh, they wanted to embody that, which that guy fucking dies because he pushes somebody over the edge. Like, you know what I mean? Like someone that shouldn't have been pushed because like they're just trying to get anybody, you know, um, either like people getting drafted, like or, you know, or or people like the few people that are actually like, oh, maybe I'll go to Vietnam. They're reactionary as fuck. Like some of those people are going to break. Some of those people are 100 percent going to break. And instead, they're just like, we should keep doing this. This is this is a system that's working for us. I'm going to literally just embody this this character that's supposed to be showing how far that like the Marine Corps pushes you. <laughs> you just see that over and over and over again in, in things that are satired. So that element of film almost doesn't work. Like, um, yeah. I well, mean, with, it, the, with the all in the family thing, what I'd say is it, it kind of goes from. I mean, like if you're if you're satirizing a war, right? Like it's kind of a very specific thing. Like you have people kind of f- feel like fill into these tropes, and you're you're kind of making a point, and people kind of you know there's there's a, a lot of people that like this has to be talking about, and it's like a system more that you're that you're satirizing more than the individuals maybe themselves. With Archie Bunker, he was a very specific kind of person that existed in a lot of fucking places, like you know what I mean, like in cities across America, like so you know, all of a sudden he's kind of like looked at for these like incredibly reactionary, uh, like conservatives, like Nixon conservatives, fucking Reagan conservative, like, like during this era where this kind of person is like kind of flourishing because like white backlash politics are flourishing, which is, which is dangerous. Cause it's not just that they're talking about one issue. Like it's not like he's filling a role with one issue. He's everything. He's all political issues at once because they're handling all political issues at once. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's that's interesting. It's also interesting that you bring up Norman Lear and to think about the I think utter regression of a Norman Lear type to an Aaron Sorkin type. Because 
I don't think I can watch another Aaron Sorkin movie and not want to stab someone like ever. Um, well, I mean, and th- much much like Democrats always like it's somebody writing uh, political. It's somebody writing political movies that don't that doesn't really understand politics, mm-hmm. or or maybe understands politics, but like the wrong part of politics. Like look at uh, Chicago Chicago Seven, like the the one that came out last year, or whatever. I mean, it's incredibly boring. It's a, it's a really boring movie. Like it's a well-made movie, but it's a boring movie. And the only thing that he can really envision is like the one side of it being like, um, like, like Tom Hayden wanting to win elections, which, you know, uh, his, his style of like, like the SES is way more complicated than that. You know what I mean? Like, like all of the things that they were doing at once, but it's like, Oh, we want to win progressive elections. And then the other side of it is like, Oh, well we want to pretend to like levigate, le- le- levitate the Pentagon on TV. Like, you know what I mean? Like, which is a real thing that like, uh, but but like you know their their new left his new leftist reading is like these two very small windows that you're like having you're watching them argue it out and it's someone that doesn't really understand understand what he's talking about you know what i mean like just kind of going based on like what he assumes would be on the page um, right well i mean you know I, there's a somewhat infamous article now that i think is totally fair is like we, we must be afraid of everybody who got their notion of politics from the West Wing. But I mean, there is a sense in which that particular boomer triumphalist liberal uh, narrative, which is also why we think the boomers were progressive, because by and large, for, you know, if you read uh, Rick Perlstein or whatever, you know, they weren't like yeah. not even as children, like th- like most of them were not hippies and the yeah. hippies weren't, you know, were, yes, there were Maoist in, in hate Ashbury, but like that, you know, that wasn't most of the country. Um, that was a very small percentage of the country that didn't have any, any actual power or influence to do anything except like yell, Hey, I'm a Maoist. And then, the yeah, other, and, then like, and then like give it up and then become, and then work for Hollywood or something, which is what yeah. actually what ends up happening a lot of the time. And so, <laughs> So you have this like delusional version of politics that's a self self myth making that we all grew up being shoved down our throats. If you grew up in the nineties and the early aughts, you got the boomer mythology constantly as a kid. Yeah, like well, I mean, I, I have it, I think I have it worse than um a lot of people because I live. I mean, number one, like my dad just moved there, like Woodstock, which mm-hmm. isn't even where the actual Woodstock festival took place, but like Woodstock, the town that rejected the festival, that's like that, that they took its name from it. Um, like is like I don't know, like half an hour from me, and then I'm in like New Paltz, which is like you know, like uh, false, false like college hippie town, mm-hmm. which you know. So it's like that that kind of boomer mythology is literally everywhere. Like there's just stores that sell tie dye, like that's you know what I mean. Like all of the all of the um, like all of the stores that are just like I don't know. It's all like just you know like false false neoliberal uh new left bullshit. Like that kind of that kind of aesthetic. Nothing behind mm-hmm. it, but like that—that that boomer aesthetic is everywhere within this town. <laughs> I literally lived above the first apartment I lived above, um, or second apartment I lived above was above a store called the Groovy Blueberry, that's owned by a reactionary, like Trump-supporting Republican hippie, like you know, but like, um, but it like claims to be a hippie and sells tie dye. That's what the store sells tie dye like crystals. The number of hippies I met who were libertarians who became Trumpists from like the southeast is pretty high. Like, um, <laughs> I actually now I'm like, were you ever a hippie or a child of a hippie? Because I'm now that's now actually sort of like 
a good tell on whether or not you'll have reactionary politics. Yeah. Um, and, and, I, and I think, I, I, I do think like uh, some people are bringing up Forrest Gump, but I think Forrest Gump, which is one of the most reactionary movies that ever, that ever got my teenage self to feel anything um, uh, because it plays your sentiment strings extremely well and all i've really felt about it is anger for my entire life like i was born the the year that forrest gump came out so so so, so, yeah this is in my in my i was uh 16 when forrest gump came out so um um, i'm i'm pretty significantly older than you but it's it's an interesting (laughs) feeling because even when i watched it just three or four years later i was mad and what, what's funny, I then read the book to see if the book was that reactionary, and it's not. Yeah. Like, it's it's actually, like, it's a far more bitter satire on the baby boomers than that movie, than that uh, slock is. Um, but I think it's interesting how much that played to a certain, you know, generation. Um, and how much that does encapsulate where movies went is like, okay, it doesn't seem to have politics, but it seems to kind of talk about everything, but yeah. like, like, look, it has, it has politicians in it. Yes. Politicians <laughs> in it. And like, it has black Panthers in it and they're scary, but they're not bad. Maybe it's only the white ally. That's bad, but we don't really know anything about the Panthers. They're just big and scary. And, yeah. and uh, also AIDS is going to kill you. And Jenny gave it and Jenny, being abused as a child and responding to it by <laughs> by uh, by becoming um, a slattern um, dies of AIDS and isn't it sad? But also justice somehow. And it's like what? Um, <laughs> but I mean, the, even the fact that he's like mentally challenged, and that's what you know. It's an inspiring story of a mentally challenged man. It's like Oscar bait, you know what I mean? And, right. it, and that still works as Oscar bait. It's just maybe less. Uh, less reactionary in some in some ways like i don't think you could have like you know the justice coming from the the female character dying of aids now you know what i mean like at least yeah, that's, that's not the case um it reminds me i mean it's actually interesting um how that's still that 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 reactionary sentiment was still so much in even mid to late 90s movies um, cause I remember what like Patricia Highsmith, for example, would always talk about why she didn't write that many lesbian novels because she didn't want to be deemed, um, a lesbian writer, but also because she would dare to write books where the gay people didn't die at the end. Yeah. Um, and I'm thinking about like how many, like, I'm going to feel for people movies that I see in the nineties that were, that were supposedly like, uh, pro queer that were like watch person die of AIDS so that you can finally say something about AIDS, even though like we kind of actually, by this point are beginning to do something about it. Yeah. <laughs> like it's such a strange, um, uh, well, there's a whole decade phenomenon. where they, there's a whole decade where like, not only were they not doing anything about it? Like, you, you know, I mean like Reagan literally just didn't talk about it. Like the AIDS crisis was fully, Oh no! I remember. I I I grew up and and had to have a blood transfusion in the eighties. I know. Um, uh, it's it's a it's a crazy time to have lived through. I will also say, like, um, I think it. I think it's interesting that people don't talk about its effect on sexual attitudes all that much. Um, like the like, I think 
AIDS and the dangerous erotic thriller of the late 80s, early 90s are reflections of each other, like pretty directly. Um, and it's it was also a time where like, I don't know. I mean, like I was scared to death of sex because I grew up, I, you know, like I was in school, like, like my first memories of like the news are like Tiananmen Square and like Freddie Mercury dies of AIDS. And uh, it's not just for gay people anymore. That was like, oh my god, <laughs> hey, um, not just for gay people anymore. That's the that's the, like, that's the marketing, which it never really was either. But like that was no. like the way that was the way that that it was viewed in like the late eighty in the late eighties. And um, I and mean, bring up, bring up bring up like Dallas Buyers Club again. It's interesting that it took kind of that long to make a movie about AIDS. That's like a, you know like a like a giant movie about AIDS. That's just like, hey, by the way, straight people get it too. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it just kind of gets it from like banging a banging a girl at a rodeo. Like, you know, like they didn't they didn't try to scare you with the intravenous drug use um, with him specifically. Like, they didn't try to scare you with anything gay. Like, it's just kind of like, oh well, you know, you could just have gotten it. And it's like, I don't, I don't, I can't think of another movie that I re- that I remember seeing before that where they kind of just uh, show that like, oh, you could have just gotten AIDS and not. Uh, you know, not even like been involved in any of the lifestyles that they're clearly trying to criminalize and crack down on and moralize against, um, which is why that narrative grew so big. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I do remember how many people that I, I mean, it, it's, I know this sentiment is shocking now and we forget it, but how many people that I knew in the mainstream that you could read and be like, well, you know, AIDS is just punishment from God. Yeah. I was like, some people, I mean, some, there are some of the more hardcore, uh, evangelical Baptist pastors that still are down with saying that, like mm-hmm. <laughs> it's less popular in the, in those circles, I guess. But like, you know, there's still a few, there's still a few of them that slip it in there every once in a while. I bet if you had a, a, a nice long uh, conversation with Mike Pence, like, you know, just, just the two of you, like, I bet he'd have, a, he'd still feel something like that. Like, <laughs> um, so it's it's an interesting thing to talk about. I think uh, I'm going to wrap this up. I was I wasn't talking about you know can movies really be radical, but we've already really talked about that. And the answer is yes. Part two, a part yeah. two episode. Yeah, <laughs> the answer is uh, yes, but also no. Like, yeah, no. That's like, that's really the that's really the answer that I've come like this movie podcast has brought me to, and like mm-hmm. doing the streams on uh give them an argument too. Like when we were doing like the movie streams, like. Really, my my answer to that question is every single time yes and no. Like, <laughs> it's like, like there's no way for if a film if a filmmaker is being honest to the society that they live in, um, and and they make a film, there's no way that it's not going to also contain all their aggressive elements in it too. Like, yeah. and 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 actually, from the from the standpoint of Marxist literary criticism, right? And going back to Marx, Marx didn't even have a problem with that. Marx would actually talk about how some of the best art was reactionary art because they didn't try to like portray the world as anything other than what it was. Yeah. Um, uh, well, I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I think that there might've been a different take on that if kind of fascism had taken hold during Marx's life, because there's uh, some very um, reactionary, extremely idealized like Nazi art where you look at it and you're like, no, nothing's ever fucking looked like that. Like what you're, what I'm looking at is kind of, is kind of weirdly beautiful. Like the, like the films of, you know what I mean? Like Nazi Germany, but also just like 
nothing looks like that. Like it's it's regression back into like a fairy tale format. And you're like, this is this is weird. I don't I don't. This isn't this isn't the American kind of reactionary where we're just like, guess what? Military's here, baby. <laughs> and well, the CIA. Like, <laughs> I think I think what we forget about with fascism is uh, there's a whole lot of other stuff. Yeah. Particularly fascism. Um, what I find interesting about about fascist art, and I've said this to make people uncomfortable, but it's also true, is how close it is to Soviet art. Like, it's like a weird. It's just slightly different. Um, now, yeah. what they, well, I, I think that there's, I, mm-hmm. I think that in both like the Soviet system and fascism, there is there's an idea that you know the the purpose of the government, the purpose of the state in in that case, you know what I mean? Like the purpose of the party supersedes everything else. So when you see these incredibly like um, idealized, uh, you know, depictions of things in art, it's because the the one purpose of art, I think within within that system is to perpetuate like the the you know what what they're trying to to perpetuate the message of a party so i think i think in any case when you know if if that if that is if that is seen as the purpose of art if all art is funded by that you know what i mean like or all art that's funded is for that purpose i think i think all the art that we would look at would be uh would look like that although you know the cia's um funding of like jackson pollock like obviously that's the exact on purpose, the exact opposite of Soviet art, because they're like, "Look, you can throw in America. We'll give you money to just throw uh, throw paint on a fucking canvas." And <laughs> yeah, so it's something that I think we have to we have to deal with. Um, I also, I mean, to, to be fair to to uh, to Marx and reactionary art, uh, most reactionary art in the modern context is really bad. Yeah. Or it doesn't know it's reactionary. I actually say most reactionary art doesn't is not aware that it's reactionary. And most art um, kind of is reactionary in itself because it's kind of perpetuating a reactionary system. Like you know what I mean? Like the like our state and our like capitalism itself is kind of is, is incredibly reactionary. So like you know if you're if you're reflecting that funding system, like of course your art is going to be reactionary. Yeah, and and I think that there's also I, during this 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 exact question, um, something that I was thinking about when we were talking about this was like, you know, um, art by committee versus uh, auteur auteur art. I, I think that you know the the auteur style of filmmaking is dying away. Um, you know, it was only, it was only really like a few decades where that was a, a, a you know like a like a prominent talked about thing. Yeah, it's I, really it's, from it's, the late '60s to the early '90s. Right. Yeah. So the more people you you bring into your collaborative process, the less your film can really say. So like, you know, when when we're looking at like whether film can be uh, radical, art by committee will never be radical. Mm. No matter how even even if it's like a radical committee, like, you know what I mean? Like it just has to please too many different people. (laughs) I think that I I think that's. uh that's a good place as any of the ended. I, I was going to like push back on that a little bit. I actually can't because um, most Soviet film is also pretty anodyne. <laughs> um, uh, that's not all Soviet film. I and mean, it's not to say that they're all bad movies, but the, the movies that I can think of were that are really interesting are still end up being kind of our tourist. I Eisenstein and um, uh, I got I mean, a committee can always, but also a committee can always delegate to an auteur, you know what I mean? Like it's right. Yeah. And and they would, right. Like, um, but when I, when I talk about, when I talk about art by committee, I'm talking about like the, the modern, uh, like the, the modern, like, 
uh, capitalist, like, player style, I'd say, because, like, in, in the player where they're kind of like, oh, we don't even need writers anymore. Look, we can just kind of pitch this around a room of producers, and we can right. do exactly what the writers do. That's the kind of art I'm talking about, not the concept of having a committee that kind of decides on these things. Yeah, um, I do think – I think from the production side, I just to, to – this is my last sentiment though. The auteurs got away with doing stuff that w- we shouldn't have accepted. Yeah. Um, well, once uh, again, well, heart of darkness. I was just yeah. watching that like two nights ago. Like you just watch, like I, I'm re- I'm watching stuff about John Landis. I'm watching stuff about Coppola. I'm watching anything you read about Kubrick. Kubrick hated actors. He also didn't seem to like women very much. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's uh, you read about that. And you're just like, Wow, I almost feel weird about enjoying some of this. Um, he, liked, he liked his wife. He, that was the one woman. That was, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> he's like, he's like, hey, go go over there and paint, and all, and all, you know. Like, <laughs> um, there are movies. There are there. There also, I think we forget there are bad Kubrick movies like Lolita, um, which is yeah. bad. It's just yep. bad. Watch um, that. Um, <laughs> two months ago for the i finally was like curious and i was like i'm gonna watch Lolita, and i made it like three quarters of the way through it i was like i like i i don't, I don't yeah. want to watch whatever's about to happen here. <laughs> that was the um, second pedophile god damn it <laughs> um uh, i saw it a really long time ago when i shouldn't like when i was too young to like you know what i mean like to process it so it's not like, the first time i've seen Lolita, but like i like i don't know I'll, I'm going to drop a recommendation because I think it actually treats the differences between the books and all the films and cultural productions really well. And that is uh, Jamie, Loft- Jamie Loftus' Lolita podcast um, because I, I don't think the book is guilty of what every version of the book is guilty of. Um, and uh, which is a very interesting thing, particularly if you know about Nabokov's background. I, I've, for my patrons, I, I did a whole monologue on... Uh, quasi defending Nabokov without doing the whole lame thing people do, but Lolita's a bad movie. Both versions. The Jeremy Iron movie is also bad. Um I mean who really wants to see that on screen anyway? Like Well I mean like, that's why they always age Lolita up so that you do want to see it on screen. Yeah. Like but, it's like, <laughs> but, but I'm saying yes. like at, at its most base. Like who want you know what I mean? Like it's, it's like this is this is like a, a horrible concept in the like in the first place. Like, of course it is, you know what I mean. But like, but then to like have to sit through it for two hours, it's like I don't want. Like, there's no part of me that wants to. Like, right. Um. So with that said, I think uh, the yes and no answer is a, a frustrating, non-committal answer that I think is also true. And so we'll end there. Thank you, uh, Forrest, for coming on. What movies yeah. you doing this week, and where can they find you? Oh, so we're we're kind of having a crazy week. Um, so I'm doing tomorrow. I'm doing Tropic Thunder, um, and then we're doing Dawn of the Dead on Friday, and then we're doing Nightmare on Elm Street on Sunday. So I kind of have a insane uh, podcast week. But um, Patreon.com/slash Movie Night Extravaganza and or Movie Night Extra and YouTube/slash Movie Night Extravaganza forward. Um, right. I, I wish I, I wish both were available on the same thing and they weren't. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for coming on for us. I'm sure that your that your people will see me again sometime. Yeah. Um, and because you always need a bunch of people for your show. Well, I've I've been trying to limit that, and then it's still every couple episodes ends up happening, 
I'm like, oh, I like this person. Like, they want to come on and like, you know, like this person. Like, I, I was, I was really happy that I was disciplined. I had uh, Conan Neutron and Karthik supposed to come on um, yesterday for the Halloween stream, and then JG Michael was like, hey, like, I, I really like Halloween. I've seen every single one. I'm like, oh, come on for sure. Then Kendall's like, I've seen everyone. I'm like, well, I can't say no. Like, everyone's seen every every Halloween. Like, I haven't seen every <laughs> sequel. So like, let's let's bring you let's bring you both on. And then next thing you know, it's like uh, five people on screen again. I'm like, ow. Oh. This is what I was. <laughs> uh, well, it's always a problem when you're doing a movie podcast because we all like movies. All right. Yeah. Uh, thank you for coming on, Forrest. I'm going to drop you out of patron business. Um, so I have a bunch of Patreon shout outs today. Um, I got to stand out my my Khan Ilkahanen, um, which are, there's a lot now. Thank you guys for stepping up. Uh, Grimlock, thank you for joining the ranks of the great cons. Uh, Habib Rahman, thank you for joining the ranks of the great cons. Solution Space, thank you for joining the ranks of the great cons. Joel Harold, thank you for joining the, the ranks of the great cons. Zoe Sandra, thank you for joining the ranks of the great cons. Uh, I think that's everybody. There's five of you. Um, so that's where we're going to end off tonight. And uh, thank you for joining us. Have a good night. Go watch some good movies. Uh, for those of you who are really into movies, um, Shallon Van Tyne and I are going to be talking about some movies in the next two months over on the Patreon side. Uh, Shallon is also a, a, a film lover, and um, uh, we love to talk about pretentious movies that are really good, but also really pretentious. All right. Remember, you don't ever have to watch a bad movie. Bye. Thank you for supporting Varmblog. If you would like more, you can find our stream on YouTube under my name, C. Derek Varn. You can also find us on Patreon, where you can subscribe for early audio access, additional shows, unexpurged audios, Q&As with me on video, and other perks, such as access to our archives, etc. There are three levels of support. One level even gets you on Patreon shows. Occasionally here you will hear shows done with other creators. I hope you enjoy them. We'd like to thank our producer, Paul Channel Strip, and Bitter Lake and Jason Miles for making our intro and exit music. And thank you for all you do. If you can't support us financially, you can support us by leaving a review on iTunes or your pod catcher of choice. Have a great evening. Thank uh-huh.